Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Rebecca Robbins. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardy. Wait, Rebecca, what are you doing here? Well, I'm back, actually, temporarily. (laughs) Rebecca, hello, we missed you. I missed you guys. So wonderful to have you. For for people who may not know, Rebecca Robbins is uh, one of the original co-hosts of The Read Out Loud. She now works for The New York Times, and we're going to have her back on in a little bit to talk about a, a really amazing story that she wrote about Moderna and the U.S. government. It's Thursday, November 11th, and in addition to having Rebecca on, here's what we're going to talk about this week. Our stat colleague Olivia Goldhill joins us to talk about efforts to turn psychedelics into mainstream treatments for severe depression. And we start with some news from the week in biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Chris Benko, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. Chris, why is putting patients at the center of the drug development process important? Thanks, Angus. At Conexa, we're revolutionizing effect detection in clinical trials by building health measures that matter to patients. We're a pioneer in using technologies such as wearable sensors and mobile health tools to build digital biomarkers that can accelerate drug development. When partnering with sponsors to design a new measure, we gain patients' input on how their symptoms should be reflected, in addition to hearing expectations and experience with the technology being considered. Doing this matters because it builds shared commitment to the program objectives, which improves participation. Moreover, it helps ensure the data we gather is both meaningful and useful to assessing the potential of a new therapy. For more information about Conexa, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health. Pfizer is having a massive couple weeks here. They, uh, as news broke that right after we recorded our last podcast, their antiviral for COVID-19, as you've probably heard, demonstrated really impressive efficacy in a late stage trial and is likely headed for uh, FDA review before the end of the year. The company also announced earnings where their COVID-19 vaccine uh, surpassed even the lofty expectations it had for revenue, which looks to be poised to continue into 2022. It is, uh, Megan, you spoke to Albert Borla, a great time to be Pfizer, it would seem. Yeah, he also pointed out the timing of the news for the antiviral was coming almost exactly a year after they got the phase three results for the vaccine. So early November is a good time for Pfizer. And and as he sort of put it, a good time for humanity (laughs) getting us new solutions to the pandemic. Uh, Albert Borla also had a star turn at the New York Times Dealbook conference this week, speaking with my CNBC colleague, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Um, And there was one exchange that just caught everybody's attention. We're going to play it for you now. And specifically, they're announced in very high-profile people who have not taken the vaccine and made it pretty clear, or in some cases lied about it. I'm thinking of Aaron Rodgers. Have you followed Aaron Rodgers? No. The football player? I didn't. Uh, He said that he was immunized, but he really wasn't, and it's become a a great debate. Uh, He had listened to some degree to Joe Rogan, a name I'm sure you've heard about before. Still not, not, not very familiar. I'm not a football guy if he's playing football. Uh, Joe, Joe Rogan is a podcaster okay. who has spoken about the vaccine mm-hmm. at great length uh, before. You, do you follow the people who are, who are making some of these statements? Uh, not really. 
So I have to say, I envy uh, Borla for not knowing who Joe Rogan is. I just thought it was amazing. Andrew just was like, of course you know Aaron Rodgers. Nope. You know, but what, Joe Rogan? Nope. Him not, not him either. It does like underline the question, what is Albert Borla's media diet exactly? Obviously, he's a busy man. Uh, he's got a presumably difficult or at least time consuming job. But you know, when he's unwinding, is he is he listening to NPR? Is he does he have any kind of podcast consumption? Obviously, he's not watching the NFL. Fair enough. But I don't, uh, if, you, if you listen to that clip clo- uh, closely again, I don't even know if he knows what a podcast <laughs> is. He probably listens to this podcast. <laughs> Undoubtedly. <laughs> Moving on. There is a lot of anticipation over who will be named the next FDA commissioner. And most of all, because there's actually a deadline coming up uh, early next week. Guys, tell us about it. Right. So Janet Woodcock, who has been serving uh, in the interim role as FDA commissioner for almost well the entirety of the Biden administration, basically, uh, there is a deadline for her interim status. If the administration has not named a permanent nominee, whether that be her or someone else, then she has to resign. Now, what we the reporting suggests at this point is that Robert Califf, the former FDA commissioner, will be that nominee. Um, and that if said nominee, you know, is, is named before that deadline, then then Woodcock will get another 180 days or so in that interim status. So basically, I think everybody is thinking any day now, literally any day now, including perhaps between my saying this and you listening to it, uh, will the White House name Robert Califf? So that's just kind of the holding pattern that we're in right now. And if they change their mind and, and decide to nominate me, I'll, I'll let you guys know. <laughs> Still don't think your uh, Twitter unsent uh, tweets will allow you to get through that confirmation process. Yeah, probably true. So there was another thing that happened, um, has happened in the last few weeks that's kind of caught you guys' attention. The rule of three, uh, there was a trend with biotech deals and stocks or biotech news and stocks going down as a result. Adam, what's going on there? Yeah, so this week, uh, Biohaven, which is a drug maker, they have a migraine treatment. Uh, They announced a pretty significant uh, marketing collaboration with Pfizer that you think would should be, be applauded by shareholders of Biohaven, except the stock fell pretty sharply on the news. And the reason that it fell was because investors in Biohaven really want the company to get taken out. They want, you know, they want someone to acquire the company. And this deal suggests that, uh, you know, there will be no such takeout in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and it follows, you know, you spoke to John Marigonori last week when, when he announced his uh, departure timeline from Al Nilam, the stock price went down and, and the stock explanation there was that, well, if they're going through a CEO transition, they're almost certainly not going to get bought by anyone or almost certainly not negotiating um, an exit. Uh, and a similar thing happened to a company called Marathi Therapeutics, which I thought was interesting um, in the Biohaven case is that I was reading, you know, a few kind of sell side reports and they were saying that, you know, this the stock has gone down because, Adam, as Adam mentioned, this transaction suggests they're not going to be sold. However, if their pipeline drugs fail, then they might yet have to sell themselves. And so there's still reason for looking in that way. And I began to think about and this is, you know, not a novel observation, but sometimes the will of Wall Street which is to say to get a return on an investment, is sometimes at odds with the stated goal of a biotech company, which is to develop drugs to treat um, people with diseases. And so to just see it in stark language of like, hey, look, maybe some of the drugs will fail and then we might all make the money that we were after uh, really underlined that for me. (laughs) What a happy note to end on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Here's a question for you. Who invented Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine? If you ask Moderna, the answer, of course, is Moderna. Its scientists invented the powerful and widely hailed COVID vaccine. But the U.S. government, more specifically the National Institutes of Health, say their scientists played a crucial role in developing a key component of what is now known as the Moderna vaccine. And because of that close research collaboration, NIH scientists deserve to share inventorship credit. To the government, it's the NIH Moderna COVID vaccine. So the ensuing dispute is about a lot more than just scientific ego boosting or accolades in the public. There's a patent application at the center of this fight and a possible legal action in the future. The outcome could influence the vaccine's future distribution and who stands to gain from the billions of dollars in revenue that it's bringing in. Rebecca Robbins is a reporter with The New York Times. She wrote a fantastic story this week with Cheryl Gay Stolberg there that broke the news and shed new light on the escalating NIH and broader U.S. government Moderna conflict. She joins us now to talk about it. Welcome back to The Read Out Loud, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back. So, Rebecca, set the table for us. What exactly are these two sides fighting over? So the dispute is about who should be named as co-inventors of a patent that's really at the core of the vaccine technology. Moderna has a bunch of patents and is seeking a bunch of patents uh, on this vaccine. Uh, but this one in question is, is really at the center of what powers the mRNA technology. And NIH is trying to get three of its scientists named as co-inventors. Moderna, however, uh, did its own analysis and has determined in what it calls a, a good faith uh, determination uh, that only its scientists uh, were the true inventors of this component of the vaccine. And so now NIH has to decide what it wants to do about this dispute. So after your story was published, NIH director Francis Collins was speaking to Reuters and he seemed to suggest, although there was some dispute over exactly what he meant, but that this would be up to legal authorities, which some read as, you know, NIH will see Moderna in court. And I think NIH later tried to maybe kind of downplay as more him just saying that it'll be up to the government at large. But, you know, what do people think is going to play out from this? Is there, you know, precedent for NIH filing suit against Moderna? And, and what might we see from that process? There certainly is some precedent uh, of NIH filing suit uh, regarding its uh, claims on patent rights. Uh, it's happened in the past, and it certainly could happen again. I think going to court is, is one option that the government has uh, to try to resolve this if it chooses uh, you know, to pursue it aggressively. Uh, the other option is, is continuing to talk behind the scenes with uh, Moderna. The two sides have been in conversation for more than a year. Um, NIH has, has been trying to resolve this. Um, Moderna has, has been been sticking to its original position. And I think the important thing to think about here is whether or not to name someone as a co-inventor on a patent isn't really about being nice about it. Like it's it's not a matter of opinion or being generous with, with credit. Um, it's not like how, you know, as a journalist, even if, say, Damien didn't do much on our story, I might give him a co-byline to be nice about it. But that doesn't really work that way in, in patent law. Like you have to, uh, by, to follow the law, only name the true inventors. Um, so it, it, both sides believe that they are, are following the law. The, the question is uh, whether these scientists were, were truly the, the co-inventors of the technology in question. Is it clear what the... Um outcome essentially they want. And by that, I mean, not just following the law and naming the true inventors, but of course, there's all of this 
other stuff swirling around the implications of who is on this patent, like the ability to decide how the technology is licensed, and all of these questions that you've reported on in depth about Moderna making its vaccine more available to parts of the world that have not had access to it, poorer countries. Um, Is it clear if the NIH wants its scientists on the patents so that it has more control over the patent? Or do you think it really is just that do what's right, name the true inventors? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to tell exactly how the government will proceed if, if it does uh, win this dispute. Um, you know, I think a lot of it, as as you mentioned, Meg, is about, um, you know, sort of the record reflecting what truly happened um, and also wanting credit for the contributions of, of government scientists. Uh, but again, the question of who is named as co-inventors on this patent does have big implications because, you know, if the NIH researchers are named as co-inventors, then there's a presumption that NIH co-owns the patent alongside Moderna. And if NIH co-owns the patent, then it would generally not need Moderna's permission to license the patent out to other companies or organizations that, in theory, could expand the supply of this vaccine. And Rebecca, if if the government is named as a co-inventor on this patent, I mean, would that enable the government to actually create the COVID vaccine or, or, or is there more to it than that? So this particular dispute has implications around uh, licensing power. Um, there are patent law experts who, who argue that the U.S. government has other separate rights, uh, mostly under Bayh-Dole, uh, that would empower it to do more um, than it is currently doing. But I think that's a, a different discussion. I think this one is is the question of whether um, NIH could license it out to other um, manufacturers. Um, and I think it's important to note that you know, if this unfolded in the way NIH wants to see, where its scientists are named as as uh, co-inventors, and, and then it has this power. And then if it even chose to exercise this power of licensing out um, this patent, that would not sort of magically solve the the supply issues. Um, there's a lot of other things that would have to happen um, before this vaccine is, is getting um, produced. And, and I think the biggest component is uh, Moderna's recipe and its uh, technical know-how. So zooming out, you know, you mentioned before the criticism that Moderna has come under from the United States government, from international organizations for a perceived sluggishness in in meeting um, its promises in providing doses to lower income countries. And then we have quotes from, you know, uh, people like Francis Collins taking the company to task. This has been a tough six months for the company, sort of reputationally. I mean, like if you zoom out, they were conceivably the plucky underdog in the vaccine race who succeeded beyond, I think the company has said, even their own imaginations when they started out on this pace. But now we get to this point where they're losing a popularity contest to Pfizer, which is not, as far as I know, the most popular company in in uh, global capitalism. I don't know how to end this with a question mark, Rebecca, but it's just been like a remarkable six months for Moderna, the way this is all unfolding. Yeah, I, I do think it is interesting how this has played out, where we have seen sort of the, the same issues that uh, we're seeing with Moderna's vaccine not reaching um, poorer countries um, much at all. That's the same thing is happening with, with Pfizer, Pfizer's vaccine. But I, I think the distinction and, and one of the reasons why Moderna has, has kind of come under this intense scrutiny has been the contribution of uh, the government in, in making that vaccine the success that, that it was. Because there's two components of it. There is the funding um, that the 
U.S. government gave Moderna. It's about $1.4 billion at this point. And that's not counting $8 billion uh, that the government gave uh, the company just to order doses. But then the other component is is the contribution of these NIH scientists. And and both Moderna and NIH agree that, that you know, they worked together for uh, four years uh, working on coronaviruses Um and that they collaborated uh, over a weekend in January 2020. Um, but the, the question in, that's animating this dispute is, is who was truly um, the co-inventor of this technology. And it's such an interesting series of events just around that one weekend, because the way the story is told by Stefan Bunsell, the CEO of Moderna mostly, is that, you know, the genetic sequence of the coronavirus was posted, and then the NIH went off, and Moderna scientists went off, and they designed the spike, you know, that they were going to use as the design for the vaccine, and then they came together, and it was the identical design. And so that's what the patent dispute is about, right? That design? That's right. And, and so the two sides, I think, agree that they were working in parallel, uh, that they both identified the, the same gene. Um, and Moderna, uh, that Monday after that long weekend, says that it finalized uh, the, the sequence that it ultimately used in the vaccine that it proceeded to develop. Uh, I think the question is who ought under kind of the strict legal definition uh, to be considered the, the true co-inventor of this this sequence. And, and um, that's not a question that the uh, patent office is, is going to adjudicate. Um, it's something that the, the two sides either are going to have to come to an agreement on or NIH um, may choose to, um, you know, to pursue in court or through other legal means. Does this patent fight have any broader implications for Moderna's technology or is it only about the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine? Um, could it stretch into other coronavirus vaccines that Moderna has worked on with the NIH, like for MERS or anything like that? That's a good question. You know, of course, the the two sides had a collaboration uh, together uh, for for four years, but but this isn't quite uh, about that that kind of foundational work. Um, this relates to the the genetic sequence that powers the. Um, COVID vaccine specifically. Um, I would imagine, you know, Moderna ha- may have some, some concerns about, about broader implications. Um, but I do think that insofar as this particular patent might be licensed out, um, its relevance would be for a COVID vaccine rather than other vaccines, even other coronavirus vaccines, uh, because it does, um, you know, pertain to the, the genetic sequence for Uh, COVID. Well, Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. This week brought some landmark news in the effort to turn psychedelic drugs into efficacious medicines. A biotech company called Compass Pathways said its treatment, a pharmaceutical form of psilocybin, significantly outperformed placebo in a clinical trial enrolling patients with severe depression. But the path from promising data to an approved drug is long, with scientific questions, practical concerns, and a lot of uncertainty around patents. Stats' Olivia Goldhill has been covering the emerging psychedelics industry for years, and she just wrote a deep dive report on the topic that you can find on Stats' website. She joins us now to talk about it all. Olivia, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. 
So why don't we start with the the news from Compass, the data that we got this week? What did we learn from that? Okay, so it was a phase 2B trial results um, for psilocybin, which is uh, the psychedelic compound you find in magic mushrooms uh, for treatment-resistant depression. Um, And we've only got kind of the headline results, not the detailed data, but they were pretty good. Um, They were very good for for treatment-resistant depression. Uh, So some patients were given 25 milligrams, um, some were given 10 milligrams, some were given basically placebo of one milligram. And the highest dose group, uh, I think 29% were in remission three weeks after treatment. And there was also a pretty sizable difference um, in how their depression score improved. Yeah, and treatment-resistant depression, that means that uh, patients have tried two to four other SSRIs. Um, You know, they've had long-standing depression. To get this level of result is really promising. Um, And it's kind of, there's been a bunch of smaller trials, but this is the largest trial on psilocybin for that condition so far. So, Olivia, how meaningful is this news in the context of the broader push to develop psychedelic medicines? Well, for for psilocybin itself, it's huge. Um, There's been, you know, as I mentioned, um, quite a few smaller studies with promising results, but those can always fade away when you get to bigger trials. Hopes can always be dashed. So the fact that there was this um, larger trial and the results uh, were as good as they seem to be um, is a real really good indication. So MDMA, uh, which is also known as ecstasy or, or molly, is further along. There's already a phase three trial published on that for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but depression is much more widespread. And so these results really suggest that it's not just going to be, you know, MDMA, it's not going to be um, a, a one drug approval, but, you know, we're looking at a wave of psychedelics uh, that could be approved for widespread conditions. Um, fairly soon. Uh, I mean, it's still just a phase 2B trial. Compass will need two more phase threes and things can always go awry, uh, but it's a really encouraging sign. So what is it like from the patient perspective to receive a psychedelic treatment? Um, what What's the experience like and what are some of the risks to it? Yeah, so psychedelics is very, very different from um, typical drugs. It's not something, you know, like a pill that you're given to take at home. Um, It's kind of broadly considered psychedelic therapy. So the drugs work in connection with therapy. Um, And, you know, they can make you more open to exploring trauma and, you know, uh, handling difficult conversations and um, encouraging new connections and and kind of... uh, discussing past events. So uh, I think in the in the COMPASS trial, uh, you kind of always take a drug, you know, with a therapist present, um, but the therapy during the psychedelic experience um, was more limited, but then there are other therapy sessions after psychedelics. It's called integration work, where you kind of talk about what happened um, and put it into a therapeutic context. I mean, the drugs themselves, I will say they have this bad reputation, but the safety profiles are are really pretty good, especially, you know, psilocybin, I think, of all the Schedule 1 drugs, there's been studies that suggest it has the least um, physical safety risk. But because you're taking it in conjunction with therapists, you know, the therapists themselves um, present some of the risks. Uh, So these drugs, 
you know, MDMA, for example, is known as a love drug, but psychedelics generally make you much more susceptible and open to suggestion. And, you know, there's quite a long history of um, sexual abuse and misconduct and misconduct in psychedelic therapy. You know, I exposed a case um, uh, last year that happened during a clinical trial. Um, Earlier this year, this, you know, really pretty famous psychedelic therapist uh, videos were found of him talking about, you know, vomiting on patients and and touching their genitals. And and some people consider that perfectly acceptable practice uh, for psychedelic therapists. Um, Trying to figure out how to make sure if this treatment is rolled out, you know, it can be done in a safe way and that, you know, there'll be protections for patients and the therapists themselves won't abuse the drugs and effects on patients is a really big question that the field hasn't fully addressed yet. So Olivia, you mentioned, you know, these drugs have uh, somewhat of a bad reputation. Um, And so I wonder what it will take to kind of make these kinds of psychedelic treatments for depression more mainstream and kind of more broadly accepted in the medical community. It's interesting because, you know, they're definitely working, you know, to shrug off these decades of stigma. But there's been a huge advancements in the past few years. I mean, so the FDA has given both MDMA and psilocybin breakthrough therapy designation, which is a sign that, you know, they think that, you know, if the results are good, this is treatment that's really needed. And, you know, the drug approval process will be, you know, faster than usual. Um, And because, I mean, there's now, John Hopkins has a huge um, psychedelics uh, center. I think they got 17 million donated to it um, recently. Um, NYU has a big one. I mean, I I was speaking to um, a nonprofit, USONA, that provides psilocybin to researchers. Um, And they said, you know, in the last year alone, the number of researchers looking at um, this drug has doubled. Um, and it's all over the world. You know, five years ago, it was like incredibly difficult uh, to do research on these drugs and there was so much red tape. And I think now that, you know, there's more and more of the phase one studies coming out with good results and researchers have shown, you know, this is how to do it safely and effectively, um, more and more researchers are getting on board. And I guess as for patients, I mean, it doesn't matter to them if it's something that's stigmatized, if it holds a promise, you know, they'll go for it. Um, And I do think... I mean, it would take some time for that kind of level acceptance, you know, if the drugs were approved more broadly. But there are a lot of people out there who are struggling from these conditions, from post-traumatic stress disorder um, and depression. And the people who need it most, I expect, would be the first ones to try and sign up um, and try and see how the you know, treatment works. And then if it's effective, we'll spread by word of mouth. So on the business side of all this, the whole idea behind investing in companies like Compass is that promising data, like we've described, can be turned into blockbuster drugs. But, you know, as you've written before, the intellectual property tied to some of these medicines can get a little complicated. Can you tell us about sort of the state of play there? Yeah. So, I mean, um, Compass Pathways, as you said, you know, they are conducting these clinical trials. It's very expensive. Um, They've put a huge amount, millions of dollars into running them. And the typical business model would be that you do that um, and then you'd kind of have a patent on a drug um, and your investors uh, would be rewarded because, you know, you would um, profit off the drug once it's released to the market uh, quite considerably. Um, But so psilocybin, as I mentioned before, it exists in magic mushrooms and, you know, indigenous communities have been using it 
it for uh, centuries. Um, it was also synthesized, synthesized first in 1958. MDMA was synthesized, synth- I don't know why I can't say it, was synthesized in um, <laughs> 1912. Um, so, you know, they, they've existed in chemical form for decades. Um, and you know, you can't patent something that's in the public domain. So then you kind of see these interesting ways to get intellectual property and more niche methods. So Compass is, is patenting, you know, versions of the drug and methods of creating it. And, you know, they're definitely being contested. In addition to the fact that it's hard to get kind of intellectual property on something that is so that has been studied for so long, um, I guess ethically, there's also a question of how is this benefiting patients um you know it's not like you're discovering a new drug um <laughs> you're you're taking a drug that um has long existed and just trying to find a way uh for the company to um profit off of it i mean some people argue that the patent system overall you know rewards investors and so it's good for patients but that's definitely up for debate and i think it's seen as yeah pretty controversial to be trying to patent psychedelics is a fascinating industry and your coverage of it has helped us really understand it better. Olivia, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you again. It was fun chatting. And if you are interested in learning more about this topic, as we said, Olivia has written an in-depth report. It's called The Shroom Boom. Very clever. And you can find that available on Stat's website. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your thoughts on the NIH Moderna patent fight. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.